is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. It was a mistake! I didn't, I didn't mean to help it! It was a mistake! You can We can't. Not alone. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. Please. It's a waste of good suffering. Wait! 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 Please wait! No time for argument. You've done this before, right? Many, many times. To a man called Frank Cotton? Oh, yes. He escaped you! Nobody escapes us. He did, I see him, I see him. Supposing he had escaped us, what has that to do with you? I, I can, I can lead you to him, and you, you can take him back instead of me. Perhaps we prefer you. I want to hear him confess himself. Then, maybe, maybe. But if you need us, we'll tear your soul apart. Someone to separate the bad from the good. I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 228, Hellraiser. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you are a regular returning listener of this podcast, whether you are a brand new listener of this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy and the pleasure and the pain of Hellraiser. And this is actually an episode that's been a long time coming. I've wanted to cover Hellraiser for such a long time. And it's one of those that's been put into the schedule and then taken back out and put back in and taken back out for no reason other than other things that seem to have taken precedent on this podcast. But I decided, no, this spooky season, this October slash Halloween season, I really wanted to cover Hellraiser, finally. Because I love this movie, genuinely adore Hellraiser. So I'm genuinely delighted to have you here for this episode. And as always, so much love and thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast, but also those who've listened to the most recent episodes of this podcast on Wishmaster and Poltergeist. And both are fascinating looks into horror cinema in very different ways. And we're moving again into something a bit different from both of those things. Because horror can be campy, like Wishmaster, and it can have jump scares, like Poltergeist, but it can also be body horror. 
An exploration of sexual desire, lust and gratification and the pleasure pain theory. But some people take their sadomasochistic desires too far. People like Frank Cotton and his ex-lover slash sister-in-law, Julia. We have such sights to show you. Here's the trailer for Hellraiser. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Cotton, in his relentless pursuit of hedonistic experiences, solves a mysterious puzzle box known as the Lament Configuration. However, unlocking the box also opens a gateway to a dimension inhabited by sadistic and otherworldly beings known as Cenobites. After Frank's reckless actions result in his gruesome demise, his brother Larry and Larry's wife Julia move into the same house where Frank's dark rituals took place. When Larry cuts his hand and spills his blood in the room where Frank died, it resurrects Frank in a grotesque and partially skinless state. To fully restore himself, Frank convicts his ex-lover Julia to help him by luring victims to the house where he can harvest their blood. Larry's daughter Kirsty sees her stepmother bringing men to the house and discovers her uncle's grotesque form. She accidentally releases the Cenobites and bargains with them to save herself from their torture by offering Frank to them instead. Let's run through the cast. We have Claire Higgins as Julia Cotton, Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty Cotton, Andrew Robinson as Larry Cotton, Sean Chapman as Frank Cotton, Robert Hines as Steve, Doug Bradley as the lead Cenobite, Nicholas Vince as the chattering Cenobite, Simon Bamford as Butterball Cenobite, Grace Kirby as female Cenobite, and Oliver Smith as Skinless Frank. Hellraiser has a screenplay by Clive Barker and was directed also by Clive Barker. And Clive Barker has been a prolific horror writer since the mid-1980s with his short story collections Books of Blood, which when published in the US got the seal of approval from Stephen King, who was quoted on the book covers saying, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. High praise indeed. Barker wrote the screenplays for the George Pavlou-directed films Underworld and Rawhead Rex, which were both based on his own novellas, but he was unhappy with the way his material was handled. So he decided to take control of his own destiny and moved into filmmaking with Hellraiser, which was based on his novella The Hellbound Heart, 
published by Dark Harvest in the third volume of its Night Visions anthology series. He hadn't always been a writer, though. In his youth, he worked in fringe theatre alongside his high school friend, Doug Bradley. That name rings a bell. Barker's troupe went through several incarnations, always with him at the core. The Hydra Theatre Company became the Theatre of the Imagination, which in turn became the Mute Pantomime Theatre. And finally, after Barker and Bradley had moved down from their home city of Liverpool to London, the final incarnation was named the Dog Company. As a filmmaker, Barker had also made two non-sync sound shorts, Salome and The Forbidden, the latter of which featured the visual of a bed of nails that had been hammered into a grid pattern. Barker didn't make much money from his experiments with film, theatre or illustration. He realised the money was in writing and Books of Blood became a success with The Hellbound Heart published in 1986. Clive Barker's admitted to working as a hustler in the 70s and found sex to be a great leveller. He would say in an interview with The Guardian, quote, It made me want to tell a story about good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue, unquote. Most horror movies either contain sex as the reason by which the teenagers in the cabin in the woods would die, because virgins always survive, might just feature some boobs or bum to entice teen boys, or just didn't feature any sex at all. The Hellbound Heart would not just feature sex, but also take inspiration from S&M clubs, and most importantly, take place in one house. But he still needed investment to be able to make his own film adaptation of The Hellbound Heart. He got involved with producer Christopher Figg, who shopped the project around, with Virgin Films taking an interest in working with Clive Barker, but not in the content. Luckily, the name Clive Barker was enough to command a budget of just under $1 million, with a post-Roger Corman New World Pictures. Many elements from the book were either toned down or altered, including diluting much of the sexual aspect, and Kirsty becoming Larry's, or Rory in the book's, daughter as opposed to a close friend. And this was an incredibly risky prospect for New World. Hellraiser wasn't a known property. The book on which it was based was hardly a bestseller. It was rooted in sadomasochism. Barker was a first-time director. And it had no major stars involved. They planned for it to go straight to video. Barker was so new to filmmaking, he attempted to get a book about directing from his local library, but someone else had the only copy. But as the movie progressed, executives at New World saw that they had something special, something different, something that hadn't been seen in cinematic horror before. Halfway through the shoot, they attempted to take charge of the production. Barker and his team managed to gross them out sufficiently to leave, but they would insist the story be relocated to America and that some of the British accents be dubbed over, but they would also be so impressed with what they saw that they wanted more. Which is a general theme in this movie anyway, of, of wanting more. But I'm going to come back to that in a bit. And while this movie purports to be set in the US and certainly tries to make us believe that, it was actually filmed in North London. And the house that claims to be 55 Ludovico Street is actually 187 Dollis Hill Lane in Brent. The house still exists and is now flats, but both the exterior and interiors of the house were used for filming. Only the special effects were filmed in studio. And this is where Cricklewood Production Village comes in. I do wonder, though, if being a portal to hell in the 1980s affects your market value when you're coming to sell your house. But then again, my house was never a portal to hell, so I don't think I need to worry about that. Frederick Handley Page was a British aviation pioneer, and he founded the first British public company to build aircraft in 1909 and established a factory in Cricklewood, North London in 1912, where they were eventually able to fly from the airfield at the Cricklewood Aerodrome. 
1979, the Samuelson brothers, owners of a firm manufacturing film equipment, founded the production village at 100 Cricklewood Lane in an old Handley Page building. The production village was a television studio and entertainment complex. It had a pub on premises as well as a picturesque duck pond and a theatre. A number of films were made in Cricklewood, including Hellraiser. The production village was demolished in 2000 and is now a David Lloyd Health Club. But Cricklewood Production Village was vital for the more that the producers wanted. And again, I am going to come back to the famous Birth of Frank scene a bit later. The production of Hellraiser, which was supposed to take seven weeks to complete towards the end of 1986, was extended by New World to nine to ten weeks. The initial working title for the movie was Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. Barker wanted to keep Hellbound in the name, but producer Christopher Figg thought it was too negative a connotation. He suggested Hellraiser, as in more something from hell coming for you than you being sent to hell. And of course, the one thing that everyone knows about Hellraiser is the character of Pinhead, which is a name that Clive Barker actually doesn't like at all for the character, but it is the name that the fan community have chosen for the character, so I'm just going to refer to him as Pinhead. And his origins are obviously rooted in the S&M scene, but the original design of the character who is never referred to as Pinhead in this movie, originally resembled the character of Shun Sassy in Nightbreed, with quills coming out of his head. Designer Bob Keane, who worked on the visual effects for Hellraiser, met with Barker and Fig after working on Highlander. Keane and Barker hit it off immediately, and their working relationship was incredibly fruitful with ideas. He originally started working on Hellraiser before it even had a budget, and worked for six to eight weeks while Barker was writing the script and Fig was shopping the project around for financing. So the ideas they had always came from having very little money. Once they got a budget though, quills were not a possibility, as the makeup budget wouldn't stretch to that look. They came up with a drawing of a grid on a life cast just to work out where they were going with the look of the character. And the idea for six inch nails on the grid came to them and Barker loved the symmetry. Aesthetically, a grid of six-inch nails wouldn't work, and over the time, the nails became pins. Doug Bradley was offered the role of either Removals Man or Lead Cenobite, and his choice would lead to him becoming a horror movie icon. And Doug Bradley's time in the makeup chair reduced from five to six hours at the start of filming to three to four hours. Bradley would say, quote, The first time I wore it, I sat in front of the mirror trying to make friends with this new face, playing some lines and seeing where they took me. Most of my decisions about playing Pinhead were made there and then. I had a sense of power, of majesty, of a kind of beauty. His threat is implied. Look what I did to myself, now imagine what I can do to you. Unquote. In the novella The Hellbound Heart, Pinhead, aka the Hell Priest, was just a minion to a more powerful master known as the lead Cenobite. This leader had chained hooks across his face, stretching out all parts of his head. He also had chains from his eyes to his mouth, causing his eyes to move when he spoke. Pinhead was just a blank slate in the novella, but he took the centre of attention in the movie. It wasn't even the first time the character had appeared. He was present in one of Barker's plays, known as Hunters in the Snow, involving a character called the Dutchman, an undead torturer. Though the Dutchman was technically not the real Pinhead, the character concept would later evolve into the Cenobite audiences know and love to this day. The character was also never canonically either male or female, and the novella describes the character's voice as light and breathy, the voice of an excited girl. I'm only referring to him as a male character because the actor is male. 
In the recent 2022 reboot, the character is similarly androgynous and played by a trans woman. Bob Keane would say of the character, quote, To this day, I still credit the success of Pinhead to Doug Bradley. Only 10% of what Pinhead has become is due to our work, and 90% of Pinhead is what Doug brought to it and what Clive insisted that he was. He became this Bishop of Pain, and it just elevated him above all the other monsters that were around at the time and put him onto a different plane, to a much more laid-back, standing-back, general type of a character. Unlike a Freddy or a Jason or any of those other characters that were running around at that time, that gave him a lot of power. Doug just worked that and it became this magical thing, unquote. The Cenobites, the Chatterer and Butterball were supposed to have lines, but the actors were both blind and deaf under all the prosthetics, so their lines were given to Doug Bradley's Pinhead and the female Cenobite played by Grace Kirby. The Lament configuration, or Le Marchand's box, the puzzle box that summons the Cenobites, was originally meant to be a Chinese puzzle box. Simon Says studied ancient writings and symbols from North Africa, China and Old English mythology, designed it to be symmetrical but also not symmetrical in its use of symbols. It was inspired by ancient instruments of torture in an exhibition at Oxford Pitt Rivers Museum. Each box was hand-built by Says and to avoid it being damaged, Sace would lay under the Cenobites, who couldn't really see very well, just in case they dropped it and he'd have to make another, which would take him eight hours. He also caught it as Kirsty Cotton threw it out of the attic window. So I have already briefly mentioned Bob Keane, but I want to talk a little bit more about him because he is vital to the story of Hellraiser. He founded Image Animation shortly after finishing work on Highlander alongside Jeff Portis. He'd worked uncredited on the original Star Wars trilogy, credited on Krull, The Neverending Story and The Dark Crystal, and also did uncredited model work on Superman and Alien. He'd also go on to work on Candyman, also based on one of Clive Barker's short stories, The Forbidden. So I've mentioned that the producers wanted more, and once executives saw a post-production cut of Hellraiser, they realised they had something special, and instead of releasing to video as previously agreed, decided to invest more money and go for a theatrical release. And that investment became the birth of Frank. In the original cut, when Larry cuts his hand, originally the camera would cut away, only for Frank to materialise out of the wall, to Julia then discovering a skinless Frank in the attic, resurrected by the blood. But the extra money allowed them to completely reinvent Frank's resurrection. The original plan was to accomplish this with animatronics. The team even built a cable-controlled lip-syncing puppet, However, according to makeup crew member Cliff Wallace, the puppet proved too complicated for its own good. Keane would have the idea to reconstitute a living corpse from the ground up, starting with blood and organs to building bone and muscle. The Birth of Frank sequence is an entirely in-camera effect, shot on stage at Cricklewood well after principal photography had wrapped, and is the only part of the film shot in a studio. The luxury of a raised stage allowed for the effects team to operate the puppets and pumps from underneath the floor. The false floor allowed for the establishing downward pan, revealing the pulsing heart-like mass. This was designed by John Cormican and was made out of a condom, piece of tubing, some glue, lube and various bits and pieces to pull the whole thing together to make it look like a real human organ. In fact, condoms and lube were prevalent in the making of this movie. Lube helps things stay wet under camera lights. There were a lot of runs to the local adult store to stock up on condoms and lube. The shot of Larry's blood seeping unnaturally through the floor was a simple reverse shot of a red fluid being pumped up through rigged nail holes in the floorboard. 
The birthing sequence itself used methyl cellulose, a food thickener, to make the clear goopy liquid ooze, of which two animatronic arms could spring out of, which is very reminiscent of certain key scenes in The Thing as well. Wax and reverse photography were used to create the forming flesh illusion, which recreates Frank's skinless torso from bone, muscle and tendons. The group built various replicas of body parts by overlaying different waxes with various melting points. These were then burned and reverse filmed, so the result looks like regrowing flesh. This requires a variety of sets as well as close-up equipment to depict the development of Frank's hands and internal organs. For his veins, the filmmakers used coloured thread, which when tugged and played backwards, appeared to be conscious, slime, mould-like sinew. The reverse melt portions of the scene also include puppet rigs, and wires were used to gradually remove portions of Frank, simulating the character's on-screen death in reverse. And of course, they weren't the only effects in the movie, but they are the ones that hold up the best. Creatures like the engineer, the monster Kirsty meets in the hellish hallway at the hospital, don't really hold up to high-definition Blu-ray. Neither does the final scene with the homeless guy turning into a dragon-like creature, but due to the very limited budget remaining, these scenes were animated by hand over a single weekend by Clive Barker himself and an unnamed Greek guy. I have not been able to find out what the unnamed Greek guy is called, so we will just refer to him as unnamed Greek guy. But the visual effects in this movie are the things that make it stand out the most. And like most horror movies of the 80s, it is the practical visual effects that seem to stand up over time. And just a segue, something else that stands up over time is Keanu Reeves. I don't know how else to phrase it, so I'm just going to put it out there. And this is a part of the podcast called The Obligatory Keanu Reference. And this is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Because Keanu Reeves is the best of men. So that's why this podcast particularly likes to celebrate him. And of course, the easiest way to link Keanu to this movie is via Bill and Ted. Now, you might be thinking, well, Em, how is that possible? Bill and Ted are such sweet, awesome dudes. Like, what are you talking about? What have they got to do with Cenobites? Well, if you listen to the episodes that I did on the two first Bill and Ted movies, specifically Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which was a bonus, bogus episode, a bogus bonus episode even, that I did at the end of August, you will know that Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was originally named Bill and Ted Go to Hell. And it was changed. But obviously the Cenobites are from a particular dimension that could be akin to hell. So it just made sense. So Clive Barker had a lot of control over this movie, considering it was his directorial debut. He was a first-time director. He had very little directorial experience and really had to be assisted by everyone else on the production, something that he's always been on record to say he's very thankful for. He didn't have the ultimate say in everything, because he wanted the soundtrack to be performed by the electronic group Coil. But New World rejected the idea, and Coil, although they did record some songs for the soundtrack, they ended up not being able to complete them. Tony Randall, the film's editor, then suggested Christopher Young to replace Coyle for the film's score. And Young had previous in horror scores, namely the 1985 slasher A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and the 1986 Toby Hooper film Invaders from Mars. The music that Coyle had recorded as a demo for their version of the score was later released as the unreleased themes for Hellraiser. And when it came to marketing this movie, Pinhead was prominently featured on the poster. 
However, the lead Cenobite wasn't the original choice for Clive Barker to have on the poster, according to actor Doug Bradley. He wanted to save the revelation of the Cenobites for the film itself, and he wanted the puzzle box or the skinned version of Frank to be on the poster. Doug Bradley claimed that he told Barker he preferred having Pinhead's image instead and that the iconic character was the movie's selling point and would make the poster stand out. And to his credit, Doug Bradley was absolutely correct because Pinhead has become the iconic character and when you see Pinhead, you know you're talking about a Hellraiser movie and anything else would have made the movie seem like yet another 80s horror movie. But when it came to getting the movie rated, Clive Barker didn't envisage any issues with the BBSC when it came to the rating of the movie. But frankly, excuse the pun, the BBFC didn't like the intensity, they didn't like the torturous aspects, nor the sexual overtones. Their biggest concern was the rat-cutting scene, and it was almost removed on the behest of their concerns about animal cruelty. It was only after the rat effect was physically demonstrated that the sequence was allowed to stay. Hellraiser would receive an R rating in the US and an 18 rating in the UK for scenes of bloody violence, including people being stabbed and mutilated with knives, hooks and other tools, and sequences of strong horror and threat throughout, some of which involve a group of demons that have apparatus on their faces and bodies designed to inflict severe pain. There are also scenes of strong sex and infrequent use of strong language. So yeah, definite 18 rating over here for this movie. And Hellraiser premiered at the Prince Charles Cinema in London on the 10th of September 1987 in aid of Homes for Homeless People, where it was cited as the best horror film ever to be made in Britain. It was released in the United States and Canada on the 18th of September, and on its release in the US, it would gross $14.6 million on its $1 million budget and would receive a total of $33 million worldwide. So this movie was a huge financial success for New World. And so, of course, there were sequels. And boy, were there sequels, because I only realised quite recently how many sequels there were to Hellraiser. I thought there were maybe four, five at a push. But there are nine sequels to Hellraiser. There were seven of which saw Doug Bradley reprise his role as Pinhead. And prior to the first movie's release, Clive Barker claimed that he gave the production company the rights to the story and characters without knowing that it would be a critical and commercial success. In December 2020, following a legal dispute, Barker officially regained the rights to the property in the United States. And of course, in another little link to the previous episode of Wishmaster, the Hellraiser sequels Hellbound Hellraiser 2, Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth and Hellraiser Bloodline, aka Hellraiser 4, were all written by Peter Atkins, the same writer of Wishmaster. The Scarlet Gospels, a novel-length sequel to The Hellbound Heart, which also featured Barker's recurring Harry Damore character, was released in 2015. Hellraiser The Toll, set before The Scarlet Gospels and after The Hellbound Heart, was written by Mark Allen Miller in 2018. There were talk of other cinematic sequels, including a crossover between the characters of Pinhead and Michael Myers from Halloween in 2002, but it was reconsidered due to the upcoming, at the time, Freddy vs. Jason. And no one knew Freddy vs. Jason was going to do very well, and so when it did do okay, the idea of Pinhead and Michael Myers was back on the table, but it received a negative response from fans of both Hellraiser and Halloween. Then there was the idea of a crossover between Hellraiser and Candyman, both originating from Clive Barker's short stories, 
But Barker himself thought the idea was a bit rubbish and refused to be involved, and it just kind of fizzled out after that. Separately, in 2002, Dimension Films approached the co-writer of Hellboy, Peter Briggs, about pitching a sequel to the series to be called Hellraiser Lament. His treatment was deemed too expensive by Dimension Films. And after a lengthy stint in development hell, no pun intended, the remake of Hellraiser debuted in 2022. Barker had announced a remake back in 2006, but this version he wouldn't write or direct, but he would produce it. Doug Bradley was contacted to make a cameo, but he declined, both due to the ongoing COVID pandemic and out of respect for the character and his legacy playing the character. I have not seen the reboot of Hellraiser. I would like to see the reboot of Hellraiser because I think it could be quite interesting from what I know of it. But otherwise, I feel like the Hellraiser series is a little bit of a case of diminishing returns for me. Regular listeners will know I'm not the biggest horror fan, although I am starting to appreciate the genre more as time goes on. Hellraiser, though, I've pretty much always loved. This is a movie that shows every dollar of its budget on screen. And while it's never going to win any acting awards, it's as tempting as the lament configuration is seen to be. To spend time in this disturbing sadomasochistic world is something that very few of us will actually experience in real life despite there being plenty of clubs out there that cater for the BDSM community. Okay, so this is extremes in both pleasure and pain. But as horror cinema goes, nothing feels quite so sexual and ridiculous and imaginative. It is a true invitation to the deepest regions of the mind and soul, those places that you would never speak to your parents about. In many ways, Hellraiser is unequal. Nothing is quite so ambitious and visceral Pinhead is one of cinema's most recognisable villains, despite not actually being a villain. He's just doing his job, really. There are no bad guys in this movie, just human beings being human beings, pushing boundaries on sex and body horror. Is Frank the bad guy for wanting to achieve the ultimate in otherworldly pleasure? Is Julia the bad guy for wanting her brother-in-law and, you know, killing some dudes to make it happen? Maybe both, maybe neither. Hellraiser came out at the time of slashers, and so it felt fresh and original at the time. It's been diluted by so many sequels it's hard to keep count, although I recall Hellbound Hellraiser 2 being decent enough fun. Hellraiser is still as revolutionary and as unique as ever, is way more than sadomasochists from beyond the grave, and is most definitely not a waste of good suffering. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Hellraiser. And as always, if you have enjoyed this podcast, then please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Please take a moment to find me on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And you can find my posts, you can retweet, you can like, etc, etc. Yes, I am still calling it Twitter, by the way. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast and about this episode. Next episode, we are going back to some 90s horror with an all-star cast, directed by Robert Rodriguez with links to Wishmaster again, as well as Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, which is a movie that I love and I always love to bring it up on this podcast, and is also the first appearance on this podcast for Quentin Tarantino. The next episode of Verbal Diorama is on the history and legacy of From Dusk Till Dawn, one of those movies that when you watch it for the first time, it really genuinely surprises you because it's quite the two movies in one. I really love that about From Dust Till Dawn and I'm really looking forward to watching it again for this podcast. So please join me next week for the history and legacy of 
from dusk till dawn. And just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. So thank you so much for your time and for your ears. But if you do want to support this podcast financially and you have some spare money that you would like to throw my way for subscriptions and hosting and all the stuff that podcasts need to keep going, then you can. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips to give a one-off tip. Or you could go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon to join the Patreon of this podcast. And as always, a huge thank you to the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. To Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Toilet, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. You can find my website at verbaldiorama.com. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can find my merch store verbaldiorama.com slash merch. And you can also find my work and other bits and pieces that I do in my spare time over at filmstories.co.uk. You can find copies of the latest magazine and back issues of the magazine as well. And you can also find some wonderful articles. Not all of them written by me. Most of them written by other people, but they are wonderful people and it's a website that very much deserves your support. So please go to filmstories.co.uk and check that out. And finally. Jesus wept.